Hi, I'm Carla Nappi, and this is New Books in East Asian Studies. Thanks for joining us, and welcome. I just spoke with Ryan Thumb about his really exciting and really, really wonderful new book, The Sacred Routes of Uyghur History. This came out very recently in 2014 with Harvard University Press. Now, this is a book that spans lots of different disciplines and fields and is worth reading if you're interested in history at all, um, history of China, history of the Uyghurs, if you're interested in religious history, shrines as sites of historical meaning making. He talks about historical novels as forms of history making. It's just a really wonderful story that takes seriously the ways that local practices cannot just be case studies of the way we understand the doing and main and meaning and making of history, but that can also speak back to and really transform how we think about and how we practice history much more broadly conceived. So it's a book that's full of some fascinating case studies and anecdotes coming from um, what Ryan calls Alta Shahri history. Um, you'll hear us talk about the nature of that term and the reason why that term is important. Importantly, this is a book that, as he says himself early on in the book, engages with questions of nationalism, identity, and resistance, which is, you know, which are kind of three themes that I think we often associate with stories of and about Xinjiang, of the Uyghurs, etc. But importantly, it's not a book about nationalism, identity, and resistance. One of the really important things he's doing here is taking this um, really fascinating archive, and, and it's a disparate archive, right? It's a multi-sided archive of materials that would often be subsumed under the kinds of questions of, again, nationalism, identity, and resistance that so dominate the field of Uyghur history and Uyghur studies. And instead, he's showing us the possibilities of thinking with, but thinking well beyond those rubrics and categories. So I'll end there um, so that you can get to the conversation. I thought it was a really fascinating conversation in terms of the ways that he was situating his work. It's a wonderful, wonderful book, and I really can't recommend it highly enough. So I hope you enjoy the conversation. I hope you enjoy the book. And thanks so much for joining us and for listening. I'm here today to talk with Ryan Thumb about his new book, The Sacred Routes of Uyghur History. Welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies, Ryan. Thanks very much for making time to talk with me today on a Saturday, and especially about a book that I really, really loved. I think it's important. It's beautifully written, um, and I'm really looking forward to talking with you about it. So welcome. Thanks, Carla. I'm excited to chat with you. So, Ryan, could you start us off by saying just a little bit about what brought you to the field? And specifically, how did you come to work on Uyghur history? Yeah, um, I, when I was an undergraduate, uh, I, I studied archaeology and I had done some field work in the Middle East, in Syria in particular. But I also studied abroad in China as an undergraduate. And in fact, actually, Xinjiang was the was the route by which I, I entered uh, China. So that was my first experience of, of the place. Um, and when I went on to graduate school, I wanted to do something that would let me continue to engage with the Islamic world um, and with the inter-Asian, Central Asian world, because the archaeology I had done was focused on um, inter-Asian conquerors in, in the Near East, and also to continue to use 
um, what I had had learned about China. And so this was a kind of place where I felt like I could I could have it all. Awesome. So the book that we're talking about today explores the craft, the materiality, the nature, and the readership of Uyghur history over the past 300 years. Now, it argues that understanding Uyghur history in this way is really crucial for understanding both Uyghur identity and relationships with the Chinese state. And on top of this, um, it shows, I think, in a really beautiful way how analyzing historical traditions in so-called marginal societies can help us understand and perhaps work with the craft of history more broadly conceived. So it's a really amazing book, and it's doing a lot of things in addition to and as part of what I just mentioned. How did you come to work on this particular topic? Can you sort of take us into the process by which you decided to focus on this as the core of your research? Yeah, this was... um, um a, a lot of it was uh, is what I was drawn into by the material itself. So the project was inspired simply by talking to Uyghur friends when I was um, uh, studying Uyghur language in Urumqi uh, at Xinjiang University. And I noticed just a really unusually intense interest among almost every young Uyghur person I talked to in history. Uh, People wanted to talk about it a lot. And uh, so I got the idea to investigate how Uyghurs were talking about history, what the traditions of doing history as a as an ordinary person's activity um, uh, were, and um, that eventually led me to shrines and to the manuscript tradition and to all the things that, uh, that the book ended up being about. Awesome. Now, the book started out its life as a dissertation. Is that right? That is correct, yes. So could you talk a little bit about that transition? Were there any kind of major changes or transformations in the project as you moved it from a dissertation to a book manuscript? Yeah, there were uh, there there were some major revisions, but it was more of a process of revising than recreating or reorganizing. When I when I set about writing the dissertation, um, I I was I was aiming for something that could be read like a book. I was aiming more for the book genre uh, in the way I wrote, uh, precisely so that it would be something that could easily be turned into a publishable book. And my program gave me the the freedom to do that. So there was a little bit of excising some some level of detail that happened in the uh, the transition to the book. And I also added uh, a sixth chapter that uses a case study to wrap up all of the phenomena that I outline in the first uh, five chapters of the book um, in, in their interaction. Uh, but mostly it was a process of strengthening arguments, eliminating things that suddenly seemed naive to me or things that I discovered had already been talked about somewhere else. Um, but it, the, the, the basic structure and the, the main underlying ideas are, are pretty much, pretty much uh, the same as the dissertation, just done better, I would say. I hope. (laughs) Great. Now let's get right into the book. Um, So from the introduction, one of the things that becomes clear, and you're very explicit about this, is that naming is powerful. Names and power are deeply related. 
And this manifests among uh, many other ways in the book, in particular in the way that you choose to reference and to name the region, the people, really the subject of this study. Mm-hmm. This is on, this goes under the rubric of Altishar. Yes. So can you talk about that? Because it seems really, really crucial to not only um, understanding the work that the book is doing, but also understanding the way that the book might change, and I th- hopefully I think will change, the way we talk about this particular context in this history um, much more broadly yeah um, the the names are are a real obstacle to talking about this region and and the people involved in this study um, and doing so in a clear way I mean the, the main the big two names that we're presented with if we want to talk about this area are Xinjiang and Uyghur Uyghur has the obvious problem of not being um, and uh, an indigenous term until uh, until the 20th century. So they're they're really well. Of course, Uyghur had its own. That term had its own existence much earlier, but was largely forgotten about until the 20th century. And and you you would be hard pressed if you were around in the 19th century to find anyone who considered themselves a Uyghur or knew what a Uyghur uh, should be or had an opinion about that. The other problematic term is Xinjiang. Uh, if you're interested in talking about Uyghurs or their um, immediate ancestors, who I, I call Altisharis, if you're interested in, in talking about these folks, Xinjiang is a really terrible analytical category because it's it's a large administrative unit that includes a huge amount of area that has never played a, a host to, to a large number of Uyghurs. That is the Jungar the Jungar areas to the north. Um, so it's a really odd splicing, this administration, administrative unit of two completely different geographical zones, one of which is home to the people we now call Uyghurs and one of which is not. So it's a, it's a bit strange to talk about uh, Xinjiang. So um, I just delved into the way the texts I was looking at talked about the region. Xinjiang, that term is now naturalized and, and Uyghurs will often talk about Xinjiang and that that includes those Uyghurs who advocate for independence from China. Some of them, not well, most of them, would like to use the word uh, Eastern Turkestan, but some some will will imagine that Eastern Turkestan is having the same borders as as Xinjiang today. Um, so I went back a little earlier and and looked at what terms were being used. The, turn of the 20th century, and uh, Altishahar was uh, prominent among those, and it's one that's still used uh, still used by some people today. Uh, it's also the name of the most popular Uyghur rap, uh, rap group. That's important. <laughs> that's yeah. important. And it is a, it is a, a statement about identity that, 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 this, um, that this rap group uses the term Altishahar. Awesome. So Altashar here ceases to be a frontier or a margin, and it really moves to the center of the story. Absolutely. So one of the ways that happens is through the archive that you're looking at. The first chapter introduces the Altashari textual landscape as of the beginning of the 20th century, and you talk about the importance to your research of the surviving and, and it sounds like quite dispersed archive of Altashari manuscripts. Mm-hmm. So to bring us into this project, could you, uh, even further, could you say a little bit about that archive? Um, what's for you particularly interesting or notable about the nature of this manuscript archive um, for the purpose of the story you're telling here? 
Yeah, uh, the, um, there are two things that I find really fascinating about this archive. But and when I say archive, I mean as as, as I think you do, the the collective preservation of texts all over the all over the globe. Right. One is simply that the manuscript is so extraordinarily the manuscript tradition is so extraordinarily recent in this area. And in fact, people are still writing manuscripts today. So it, it was dominant as of the 30s, as of the 40s, that was most of the books. So in one way in which it's kind of exceptional is that you have just huge numbers of manuscript sources that are not very old. Um, the other interesting uh, aspect of this archive is the incredible wide variety of mechanisms of preservation that have been involved in bringing it down to the present. So, for example, you have the collections of uh, European explorers, European spies, diplomats, you know, the Russians, the uh, the Swedes, the future president, now past president of Finland, all these different outsiders coming in and taking manuscripts out. You also have the Chinese state, which is sort of omnivorous um, about uh, unprinted unprinted texts when, when the Communist Party comes to power and sort of just sucks up everything uh, that it can get its hands on, much of which is preserved. The vast majority of that is inaccessible, but we do have uh, catalogs. And then you have local preservation. Um, I did a lot of looking into book markets and antique stores and trying to figure out what kinds of texts were represented there. So I think this wide variety of preservation for very different purposes created a, a, a lot of different cross-sections of, of the historical canon and the literary canon in, in, in general in this region. Great. Now, one of the really important, at least um, from my perspective as a reader, and it seems like really fascinating elements of this story, is that you're taking manuscripts and showing us a way to understand them that moves us well beyond the idea that written or manuscripts are written texts that are meant to be read um, silently as writing. And one of the really useful things that the book does, I think well beyond um, for us, even the frame that you're talking about, is to help us think about and problematize this binary that I think a lot of us come to historical documents with, and that is the binary between writing and orality. Mm-hmm. So one of the really interesting and important things about these manuscripts, as you show here, is that they are recited. They're told. This history engages with and uses sort of writing as a fulcrum of the history um, that ultimately emerges from these documents, but the writing is a, kind of a means to a larger end. And yeah. you take us into some of this process from the very first chapter um, when you tell us about sort of arriving in a um, in Bash Tokrak. Am I pronouncing that like roughly. Yes. (laughs) Yes. Um, And you talk about hearing the tale and a story of um, a figure called Siavush. Now, this is um, a way of, um, for me, opening up the larger issue right now of um, the the fieldwork that you did as part of this historical account Mm -hmm. that you're telling us, right? Um, Mm -hmm. Your own accounts of your experiences in this area rendered in terms of the first person, often of the I recur throughout the book. So can you talk um, for us about the nature of the fieldwork that you did for this project and um, 
perhaps were there any uh, noteworthy or crucial moments of that for you, any aspects of that that really stick out? And at what point did you decide or, or in what way for you is it important to place yourself into the story in the first person in this way? Mm-hmm. Well, uh, this book is partly, you know, in the in the anthropological tradition. I I came to this study very much torn. Uh, I wanted I wanted to interact with the past and maybe even the deep past. Uh, this is something that an interest I've had all of my life, but I I also wanted my work to be very immediately relevant to people alive in the present. And I wanted to work with, with living people. So part, you know, actually I can amend the answer I gave you earlier as to how I came about this project. Part of it was looking for a way to engage simultaneously the past and to do uh, a degree of ethno- ethnographic work at, at the same time to be able to walk around and interact with the with the um, the things that I was the things that I was studying. Um, so yes, uh, the, the the field work. Um, this you know this is a book largely about movement, about people moving around, about the interaction of multiple places, and the the, the very old school version of of anthropological fieldwork is to go to a village and to stay in one place. Um, and that gives the observer, the participant, a, a great deal of insight um, into a single place, but it, it has obvious limitations for a study like this, which is about pilgrimage and about the interaction of places. So my fieldwork was very mobile. mobile. I would spend a few weeks in one town or a couple of weeks in one town, a couple of weeks in another town and a couple of weeks in another town, primarily in uh, Kashgar, Yarkand and Hotan areas, mostly actually outside of those cities um, in the, uh, sh- the areas where the shrines were. Um, and I would try to join in with pilgrimages whenever I could. Uh, I usually started my relationships with a, I established relationships with a few shrines. Uh, and once I became a well-known frequent attendee of the shrine, that opened up doors for me to join pilgrims because the sheikhs, the, the guys in charge of, of these holy, holy sites would introduce me to pilgrims. And then the pilgrims would say, Hey, we're going to another shrine after this. Do you want to come along with us? Um, and so if, it fanned out over time, as as um, ethnographic fieldwork usually does. Um, putting the eye in there is, you know, partly a a way of showing the limitation of my of my view of this world. It, it's highly limited. I could only be in one place at one time, but at the other, on the other hand, like I said, I had to be in multiple places, so I could I couldn't have the kind of deep extended uh, embedding that that anthropologists often seek. Um, and so I, I want, I want to show that I want to sh- show the, the limited, the limited access that, that I had. That's, that's part of it. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll leave it there. Awesome. Thank you. Now, one of the really important things that the first chapter of the book does is identify a key textual genre that's really crucial for the story that the book tells and that recurs throughout, I think, all of the chapters in some way. And this is, this is a kind of text called the 
Tazkira? Is that? Yes. Okay. Yep. <laughs> Great. The Tazkira. So what do um, listeners, like, what do we need to know about this kind of text now at the beginning of the story to be able to understand the kinds of transformations that you're going to take us through um, by the end of the story? The Tazkira is a story of a holy place and the holy person or personages attached to that place. They focus more on the individual, but they always end by telling you where that individual is connected to the earth in a sacred place. Almost always that it, it, uh, relates to that person's death and burial there, although there are some examples of places where the saint is not actually supposed to be there. Um, the Tazkirs are widely variable. They tap into multiple different genres, multiple different styles of writing. Some of them are verse. Some of them are prose. Some of them come from more of the kind of uh, Islamic uh, sciences influenced by um, you know, hadith and, and fiqh. Others are kind of adventure tales, and a good number of them seem to emerge from uh, the Turkic epic tradition, with a lot of influences from uh, Persian epic tradition, too. So they're really, really widely cast a uh, bunch of texts. Most of them probably started their lives with a different purpose than what the Tazkiras do. And what the Tazkiras do is to introduce the holy person of an important place that pilgrims are visiting. Um, so over the course of a few hundred years, as shrines were seen to need a Tazkira, to need a story that explains to the pilgrims what the, uh, what the holy place is all about, over time people started uh, snipping off texts from larger works, creating new texts, capturing texts that were um, circulating in oral form, and collecting them in anthologies of multiple stories of saints. And then, of course, most importantly, they labeled them all with the same name, mm-hmm. Tazkira. Right. Now, one of the really fascinating and important things about Tazkiras is that they are actually read aloud um, to quite sizable audiences, right? Um, mm-hmm. at times at the tombs. So you call the Tazkira, I think, at once a shrine's handbook and its liturgy. Mm-hmm. The second chapter of the book um, looks very carefully and I think really opens our eyes to the kinds of practices, oral recitations that emerged from this um, manuscript technology and looks at the consequences of these ways of practicing history and practicing history using the text as a fulcrum, as you put it here, around which meaning turned for how we understand authorship, um, the identity of texts, etc., so to get us to bring us into the second chapter, um, can you say a little bit about the importance of oral recitation to creating meaning to what's happening here for you in the context of this chapter? What's um, most interesting and important about what's happening here in the context of um, the oral use of these texts as technologies? Mm-hmm. Uh, I I look very much at the text as a simultaneously a symptom and almost a uh, collateral damage of the process of uh, creating and enacting and, and recreating history so that it's it's at once an artifact of the process but also 
uh, a tool, an actor, an actor within within the process. And when you look at that text that way, and you take away some of the uh, absolute authority that that written texts claim tend to claim for themselves, the oral performances, the oral deliveries that are involved in using these texts become much more much more prominent. And of course, I'm interested not just in these the oral delivery, but the presence of the book at at the place of worship, at the place of history, the movement of the book, the handling of the book, uh, the gestures to which I have no access, uh, which accompany the use of, of, of the book. All of these extra textual things shape how people understand the book. And the wonderful thing about this tradition is that you can see in the manuscripts, you can see all of these external things coming back and intervening in the text through the multiple different uh, recensions and versions of the manuscript that that are out there. So um, I guess um, one of the important things that I want people to take away from this is to both demote the text, the written text a little bit, even in a... um, even in a, a world that was dominated by by writing, I want people to see the text as a as a, as a secondary thing. And on the other hand, I want to draw more attention to the subjective effects of manuscript use. Manuscripts as a technology have been subject to a lot of really wonderful studies, but one thing I found was not very often dealt with was the subjective. I hesitate to say it, hesitate to say it, psychological effects of, um, of consuming information through a system that used manuscripts. Of course, most people weren't looking at the manuscript itself. They were looking at someone holding the manuscript and, um, and reading it. So I want to, I want to show those, those subjective effects, uh, and emphasize them. Thank you so much. Now, you talk about the manuscript as a, and I think this is your um, phrasing here, as a site at which the community negotiated the meaning of the past, right? Mm -hmm. And this happened through several manuscript-related processes. You talk about the importance of marginal notation, of composite binding, right? Binding manuscripts together in anthologies or in composite manuscripts, abbreviation, editing by readers, labeling, etc. So there's a really fascinating discussion of these technology or these practices and manuscript related technologies in the chapter. One of the things that's also really interesting is, you know, but paying special attention to the importance of the community element, right? In this mm-hmm. negotiation, you propose a way of thinking about authorship of these texts in terms of community authorship. So could you talk a little bit about that? Cause that seems again, to have potentially wider resonance beyond um, simply the cache of manuscripts that you're talking about here. Yeah, this is something that I think people are very much open to when they talk about oral tradition, and that is that uh, the, the material changes over time through the participation of everyone involved, hearing, telling. Um, but strangely, people have not been on the lookout for that as much in the written uh, in the written realm, and and the case of Altishahar and the Uyghurs and their and their ancestors is is a I think a really extreme example of the kind of drift that texts can undergo as they're copied from from you know one iteration to the next, and the freedom that 
copyists and authors and readers thought they had to physically alter uh, to physically alter the text so that the texts end up having they still claim for themselves an absolute uh, fixity and authenticity. At the same time, everyone is different and everyone recognizes that uh, – every participant recognizes that it's okay to make changes uh, make changes to the text. You get this really interesting, almost contradictory um, way that the text can be flexible and reflect the needs of the community and without losing any of its – uh, any of its authority. Um, so community authorship is what I mean to say, to express, it's the, the term I um, am using to express the fact that probably most of these texts, many of them could be assigned some original author. Uh, they're, all, they're almost all anonymous, but uh, perhaps there was some original author out there. But over time, through the interventions of copyists, who are often amateurs, they're often just somebody who needed a copy of the book. Through the interventions of copyists who are aware of the oral tradition um, that circulates at the tombs or that circulates even away away from the tomb, different stories can insert themselves into the text. The individuals can change the name of the saint to whatever they want it to be. They eliminate text that parts of the text that they think are uninteresting. And as you go from one copy to the next, the texts gradually shift into something uniquely useful to that to that community. And it doesn't make much sense anymore to to think of that text as a product of a single original author. Now, in addition to thinking about the manuscripts as sites, you also, um, beginning in the next chapter in a very dedicated way, talk about the importance of shrines to the making of an Al-Tashahri historical tradition, right, or historical practice. Mm -hmm. Now, can you talk a little bit, um, especially for listeners who aren't familiar with the the nature and and sort of um, ways that the shrine functions as a technology in this way, can you talk about some of the ways that for you the shrine is um, sort of most interesting or important in locating Altashari history? Um, yeah. Uh, well, let me start by giving just a, a little bit of an introduction to what these shrines are. Uh, they tend to have – they have a wide variety of architectural expressions. They can just be a, a lump of stones with a with a flag on them or they can be some very dramatic, uh, large mosque-like, large mosque-like buildings. Um, for me, the shrine is very similar to the manuscript in the sense that it gives – independent existence to the history. It has its own fixity. It has its own its own material being that that can represent an authentic a source for authentic information about the past for people who are interested in the past, which is um, in in my view virtually every human. Um, so just like the manuscript is a thing that's both both kicked up by the people thinking and talking and acting about the past, the shrine is also kicked up by this process too. And just like the manuscript, despite its flexibility, 
gets this sense of, oh, there's this book out there, the Tazkir of so-and-so, and anytime you want to make an argument about so-and-so, you must reference that Tazkir. Well, you also must reference that shrine. And so in order to understand the true past, and this is something many of the people I, uh, I interacted with told me, if you really want to know the truth of this, you need to go to the shrine. So uh, this produces a way of understanding history that's location-specific. You, you can't fully know the past of Muhammad Sharif or Imam Jafri Sadiq. You can't know really the history of these places unless unless you have gone there. Um, and so I like this. I, I think they're interesting as sites of authenticity. And when you spatialize authenticity in that way, um, pilgrimage becomes extremely important. And the movement of people becomes um, a way of understanding history. And so where chronology generally in, you know, university uh, systems history um, in the U.S., for example, where chronology would be the organizational system that holds our view of the past together. When you have the shrine as such an important locus of authenticity, space becomes, geography becomes the organiz- organizing um, principle for history. And that's how, that's how um, in places where the shrine shrine tradition is still really powerful um, in Altishahar, you will hear people talking about, if you ask them to, to talk about the history of their region um, or of their community, they will talk in terms of location. They will say, so-and-so who's, whose shrine is at Yarkand did this. And then, who is that guy who's buried outside of Kashgar? He did this, and he is the relative of that person who's buried in such and such place. So, um, this... The, the 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 fact that history the the shrine was so important in delivering local history is uh, to sum up um, most interesting to me because of its spatial effects. Great, and one of the um, really I think uh, interesting things that's also space related that comes out of this chapter is your emphasis toward the end on the importance of oasis geography to the mm-hmm. region, right? And I think mm-hmm. um, just to kind of mention this uh, for listeners so that we can um, then move to talk about pilgrimage you make the point here, and I think I'm very compelled by this point, right? I think it's very convincing that the nature of Alta Shahri historical narrative really reflects the nature of this oasis geography in terms of, I think you put it, concentrated islands of meaningful space in a sea mm-hmm. of em- emptiness. So there's a way of thinking about the kind of the space of this oasis geography as being reflected not only in the sort of material lived experience of the people who are helping create the shared vision of the past, but also in the frame and the form of the kind of narrative that results as well. So it's also, I think, a really interesting part of the story. Now, one of the ways that the shrine facilitated the creation of this shared view of the past, as you've already mentioned, was through pilgrimage. And chapter four looks very closely at the pilgrimage tradition and considers the kind of the effects of the sharing of tales, the reading and the recitation of tales along networks of pilgrim routes. Now, you make an argument in this part of the book, in this chapter specifically, that the deployment of origin tales 
along Pilgrim's roots helped maintain a regional identity system before the arrival of nationalism. So this is important to mention, I think, because it's sort of also um, this chapter functions as a kind of pivot point that leads us to um, increasing concerns throughout the story with these um, issues of identity and nationalism, right? Mm -hmm. The chapter argues specifically that the shared view of the past that was enabled by this pilgrimage phenomena created a kind of imagined community. So can you speak, because this is, um, as I take it, a really important part of what's happening in terms of the argumentative contributions of this chapter, can you talk a little bit about the nature of imagined community as you understand it functioning here, the ways that it might differ from what readers um, come to it expecting from experience Mm -hmm. with, like Ben Anderson's work, um, and, and the importance of this for the story that you're telling in this part of the book? Yeah, this is uh, obviously engaging uh, Anderson's uh, book, Imagine Communities, uh, but it takes seriously his very careful description of an imagined community, not as the nation, which is, I think, how it often gets taken. We, people hear imagined community, they think of, they think of the nation. Um, but when he's introducing this notion of imagined community, he talks about a lot of, um, a lot of other kinds of imagined communities, uh, the, the dynastic community, the religious imagined community, for example, the imagined community of Christendom he talks about. And I really think, and this is really because this material, the weaker material, led me here, uh, I think that there's a big lost opportunity in the paucity of attention that this element of Anderson's work has, has gotten. Because he's given us a way, you know, there's this kind of we have two choices when we talk about large collective identities, really. Is it an ethnicity? Is it a nation? If it's not one of those two things, then there's really no way to talk about it. And I think his idea of an imagined community opens up some really exciting possibilities for talking about ways of communities self-understanding and identity in the non-modern uh, the non-modern world. I have made the argument in this book for you know, Altishaher being a site of one of those imagined communities that is something a little more self-conscious and, um, and uh, uh, something distinct from an ethnicity, but also, uh, also not a nation. And I, I think that there are many more of these kinds of things to be found uh, around the world if, if we are to look for them. Right. Now, one of the um, kinds of sources that you open up for us in this chapter of the book that um, sort of helps us understand and have access to the kind of mobility that you're describing is this super awesome, fantastic, amazing graffiti. It's yeah. or at least I think it's super awesome, fantastic, amazing. That's in some of these shines. Can you talk a little bit about this graffiti? Because it is, again, super awesome, fantastic, amazing. Yeah, this was this was really fun uh, to work with this the, the graffiti. It's something that you'll see all over uh, the shrines of of Altishahar, and you'll see it in other parts of of the world as well. Um, I saw uh, very similar graffiti in uh, Kashmir this summer. Uh, so it's not it's not unique to this place, but I, I would say that um, the particular way that it's done in Altishahar is 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 distinctive. Um, the the main source for this graffiti was a single, a single shrine. Now, I saw uh, 
old graffiti in several different shrines, but only a handful because the walls tend to be repaired um, and not leave much behind. But I did find one where the walls had not been touched since at least the late eighteen uh, late eighteen hundreds, and I only got in there once. Uh, it was a total fluke. I had been to this place um, dozens of times and never been able to get inside. Uh, of the shrine, and I had even given up. Uh, I went there with a friend who was uh, a, a tourist slash language learner um, in Arumchi, an American friend, and I was going to show him uh, this this shrine, just you know, just uh, as a, a fun touristic jaunt. And the the so it was so obvious that we were tourists that one of the uh, the shrine's caretakers came out to greet us and to, you know, encourage us to take pictures and, and treated me in a completely different way than I had been treated up to that point. And then said, would you like to go see the inside of the shrine? To which I said, absolutely. <laughs> um, and he went and he got the key um, and I went inside and I just photographed every inch of the every inch of the wall. I took probably 200 photographs uh, because the wall was absolutely covered with graffiti. It was very hard to read because there are so many layers of, uh, of graffiti. Um, but I was able to put together a, a, a selection of about 30 that are clearly uh, from the manuscript era and that also have the, um, the origin of the pilgrim and the date. Uh, th- there are quite a few more of them that are missing one or more of those, one or more of those elements. Um, but that was really thrilling for me. I didn't at that time. I didn't know that the graffiti tradition was that old. Uh, when I got in there and saw that there were dates from the late 1800s, I, I was very excited. And I thought I would be coming back to that multiple times and taking better photos. And but that's not how it works. I've I've never been able to get back in there. Um, uh, again, and I wonder uh, how long it will last. Wow, um, I love that. that. I'm getting goosebumps just listening to that story. So, one of the things um, that this chapter does as well toward the end is it talks about the ways that Qing rule start to influence Alta Shahri history and identity. And you talk about the importance of the Qing system of indirect rule in particular. So for mm-hmm. the, the Qing historians um, among us and among our listeners, can you talk just very briefly about that? In what ways did Qing rule start to transform or, or at least start to shape the kind of um, historical sensibility and identity that was emerging in these Alta Shahri um, texts and, and recitations and experiences of history? The most immediate uh, way was that it cut off the tradition of um, dynastic sponsorship of, of histories. So court history, which was very prominent, uh, has been very prominent throughout much of uh, Islamic Central Asia, was pretty much gone. Now that that's not entirely the case but it it was it disappeared as a as a major force. So people are not telling the history of their lineage anymore uh, of of their royal family. There was some patronage of of uh historical works but it didn't really get copied very much. So we get a lot of well a lot I shouldn't say most of the books that came out of some sort of patronage uh, system tend to be exist in only one only one copy. So this is not something that really is affecting uh, the wider under Altashahri understanding of the past. So that's one way, which was to disrupt 
the system of history production that was in place before before the Qing. Another um, another way that it affected the, the system was simply by throwing up boundaries. Uh, travel between oases became easier than travel to outside of Al-Tashahar. Mm-hmm. Um, and then finally, the particular system that the Qing instituted to replace uh, dynastic rule um, is, I think, reflected in the histories themselves. So the, the pinnacle of legitimacy within common Al-Tashahri worldviews, political legitimacy, would be the, the, the local Muslim ruler of each town. So the Qing put in the system of begs where um, an, an Al-Tashahri individual would be in charge of, say, Kashgar, and it would be in charge of an, an oasis, essentially. Um, and so instead of getting large histories, which are highly political and which um, treat an apex of power that, that em- embraces the entire region, we get the apex of legitimacy at the oasis level. And then we get histories which are of an oasis scope. Now, of course, they get bound together um, through the physical binding of different uh, oasis histories or saintly histories in manuscripts. They get bound together through the movement of pilgrims who, through the graffiti, record their movement and, and that becomes displayed for everyone else. So these, these things get bound together. But that also, in my mind, is very much a reflection of the, uh, the Qing system of rule, perhaps coincidentally, um, where you have these local nodes of power, but they're all connected to each other through uh, a superstructure of, of Qing rule. And in fact, the networks of pilgrimage reflect the borders of the Qing Empire and the Qing administrative unit of Xinjiang. Great. Now, in the first half of the 20th century, as you um, tell us at the end of this chapter, some al-Tashahri intellectuals began reshaping the imagined community that we um, just discussed a little while ago into what they called the Uyghur nation. And this sort of idea of Uyghur um, identity was in turn kind of folded into the system of ethnic categories of the PRC. So mm-hmm. uh, Uyghur right now is um, today one of the 56 officially recognized ethnic minorities in the PRC. Now, mm-hmm. as we move into the, the fifth chapter, right, the next chapter, the book looks specifically and explicitly at the consequences of this emerging, emergent nationalism and printing for the Tazkira tradition, right? Now, you sort of talk about the importance of personage, right, of the sort of character of the personage as a major vector of historical meaning, and you sort of talk about the fact that this increasingly became the case in the context of print and nationalism dominated realm of contemporary Uyghur historical practice. So print becomes really, really important here. Mm-hmm. Now, one of the ways that it becomes important, but not the only way, is in the emergence of the fictionalized historical novel as a source of historical authority and as, as a sort of form of historical practice. This is super fascinating, um, and it, the historical novel comes up in the next chapter as well. Um, so can you maybe uh, lead us into this part of the story by talking a little bit about the historical novel um, as an emergent form 
form of discourse in this context? What do we need to understand about the ways that it was produced and used to understand the larger arguments that you're making in this part of the book? Mm -hmm. The uh, historical novel actually brings you into my initial contact with the, the material in this book. One of the things that struck me when I was doing my earliest fieldwork in Rumchi was how often the friends I talked to brought up historical novels, biographical novels, totally uh, fictionalized works as sources for history. In fact, that's almost all people that I was in contact with wanted wanted to talk about. Um, and so I I saw these as a, as a site of of some significant interaction with the past. And it was only much later that I uh, came up with the uh, idea that, the, that these were essentially um, an extension of the Tazkura. So what they are is they're kind of like a biopic, like, for example, um, you know, the Ray Charles biopic or Alexander the Great, where you have a, a story of a person who really existed, but you put all kinds of interesting words in their mouth. You add interesting other characters. Um, and yeah, the idea is that you're not closely adhering to the historical record, but the, the uh, I think the authors would always um, would always suggest that that they are still conveying the, the, the meat of the truth there. I think part of the reason this became a popular way of dealing with the past was that the writing of history is so carefully policed in, in the PRC that being able to say, hey, I'm, I'm writing fiction gave people a little, a little more freedom. But why did that fiction so often take the case of the story of one human and not just one human, one superhuman human, one incredible, awesome person who's does everything right all the time. Or in the case of uh, the novel Apakoja, one horrible person who's a traitor to the nation and does all of the worst things you could possibly imagine. Um, and I would argue that it's because, um, and, you know, this kind of novel is not invented in this area, but why did it take off? Why did it become so important? And I would argue that it's because people were, 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 coming out of a tradition in which much of their history was learned through the stories of saints. And those stories of saints are in the Tazkiras. Well, they're in the Tazkiras. And they do the same thing. The, the, the Tazkira heroes are impossibly perfect and impossibly strong and impossibly brave and impossibly holy people. And I think there was an appetite for this kind of history that that carried over. Now, of course, it gets some really interesting new uh, characteristics because of the spread of new ways of imagining the world. Um, on the one hand, print is disembedding these books from uh, social contexts. Uh, the books are cheaper. The books move around a lot more. Um, and the books are no longer directly attached to uh, to holy sites. The books don't have. The books are now being silently read. Although you can often find people reading out loud still, uh, books are being silently read. They become monstrously huge, like a thousand pages. Whereas the Tazkiras were refined for reciting, refined down to what would be maybe twenty pages in a printed book um, today. So. Uh, they get they get reshaped in this um, biographical fiction uh, form, and they take up new 
new kinds of characters because the nationalist imagination of origin of connecting a, a, a one individual to a society and making them a symbol or a representative of that society uh, demands that the person be born in the nation. And strangely enough, um, because the uh, old Altashahri imagination was not nationalistic, it didn't have that commitment to having heroes who are born within the nation. And in fact, most of the heroes of the Tazkiras are born outside of Altashahar. More important is that they die in Altashahar. That is how you establish your connection to the community. So a lot of these folks who were born outside and died in Altashahar get pushed aside, pushed aside, they get forgotten, and people are looking for new heroes that are born uh, born within born within Altashahar. Um, yeah. Awesome. Now, and one of the people who you just mentioned um, before, the Afa Koja, mm-hmm. he, um, just for listeners, uh, just to, to, I'll point out that he is the, really the focus of Chapter 6 in a lot of ways, and there's this really great set of stories of you know, some young Uyghur men treating him as a national villain, right, because of his treatment in a particular historical novel, and then this book burning, right, that mm-hmm. happens um, right. by local authorities in Kashgar in 2001 where there's like a public burning of the books of the author of this historical novel, which then gets treated, well, not then, but which at the same time is being treated as a historical source, right? Yes, yes. All kinds of really awesome um, elements to that story. Now, another form of print that you talk about um, and really talk about the importance of this form of print in the context of an emerging nationalism is the newspaper. So the chapter argues, this is now back to chapter five, mm-hmm. that Altashahri's systems of meaning and practice, especially as they're centered around shrines, right? So again, we have shrines coming up as really important, transformed nationalism as much as nationalism transformed Altashahri traditions. Mm-hmm. If, if shrines are one sort of site of meaning making, you know, newspapers, are another site that you talk about um, that are really, really important. So can you just maybe briefly speak to the importance of newspapers um, as this, or in this part of the story? How do we understand the importance and the role that newspapers are playing within the larger context of the sort of intersection of issues of identity and nationalism and history as practice that we've been talking about over the course of the conversation? Mm-hmm. Um, ju- just as the just as a new genre was needed, and that that was the Tezkira genre, in order to express the the Altishahri identity, uh, in my view, the old genres of the manuscript tradition really didn't have much room for a national imagination of Altishahar or of of Uyghurness. And um, as you know, I I. I spend some time exploring the uh, early efforts at creating uh, printing businesses or printing projects uh, in Altishahar, most of which were, I think, can fairly be called failures. Um, uh, And I think they didn't succeed because they were trying to change the way you produced books um, from of genres that had very specific rules about how to use a book and what a book should be. There were established traditions for books and a printed book just didn't fit them. But in my view, when printing really takes off is when this new genre enters and that's the newspaper. There's no, there's no baggage of what a newspaper should be. Um, and there's, and the newspaper is a, a very, 
what's the word, disposable, um, ephemeral thing. It doesn't have the sacredness that, that, that books have. And so I think the newspaper was critical to breaking free of some systems of, of producing and transmitting, uh, transmitting meaning. And it was crucial to getting print, print, the roots of print sunk, um, sunk in Altishahar. And then once you have those roots sunk, you have a lot more room for, uh, the cultivation of a national, national view of the community. Great. Now, as we move from this to the sixth and final body chapter, we move to a context in which you look at the rise, the impact of the rise of the Chinese state in shaping Al-Tashahri and Uyghur historical practice. There's a lot of ways that this happens. There's a lot of really interesting elements of this chapter. One of the many, I think, really, really interesting things that's happening here is you're showing the kind of multiple meaning-making and the polyvocal um, kind of meaning-making that is happening even in the context of a single shrine. Mm-hmm. So bring us into the shrine of the burial place of Afak, right? This is mm-hmm. um, the the guy that we were talking about, who is the focus of this novel. Um, that you know, uh, Afak Koja before this novel, um, which was one of the works that was burned, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So he's this really major, famous figure in Altashari history. So the shrine of the burial place of him is actually the tomb of the White Mountain Hojas. Mm-hmm. And you t- you show us in this part of the book the ways that Uyghur visitors and Han Chinese visitors actually are having really different experiences of the same shrine site um, and really different ways of integrating it into sort of lived historical practice. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just, we have to talk about this because it's so interesting. Um, so can you maybe take us into what's happening in the shrine? What are some of the ways that the meanings made by Uyghur visitors and Han Chinese visitors are different, and what's the significance of those different um, meaning-making practices in terms of how we understand this site as a, a historical space? The the Han vision, of course, is um, um, focused on this uh, this uh, character Xiang Fei, the the fragrant the fragrant concubine. Um, who was a um, consort of uh, the Qianlong Emperor and who was initially uh, or earlier rumored to have been buried at this uh, at this tomb. And I think most of the guides will say, well, you know, maybe she wasn't buried here, but here's 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 the grave. And for um, for the Chinese government, Shangfei is a symbol, a symbol of interethnic unity and uh, harmony. Never mind the fact that historically she was essentially um, uh, a, a a sex slave, right. um, um, and essentially the booty or process of uh, outcome of negotiations over um, the involved in the Qing conquest of of this region. So this is what a lot of uh, Han visitors are are there to see. They do learn from the guides also about. Uh, a little bit about the the hojas whose whose tomb this was originally. Now, one of the interesting elements of this is that you you might expect to, that the Uyghur visitors will have a more authentic or more um, uh, deeply rooted or closer to the original purpose of the shrine. They they might have practices that are closer to the original purpose of the shrine, but theirs are equally equally distant from the um, the practices of. Uh, that, that used to be associated, that were at least 
equally distant from what Afak Hoxha intended, let's say. Um, because they see Afak Hoxha, well, it's, I shouldn't generalize because there are widely divergent understandings of Afak Hoxha among, among Uyghur visitors, but a good number of them, uh, under the influence largely of this, this biographical novel, see Afak Hoxha as a national traitor. He's the person who historically, um, uh, we know was involved in bringing the Jungar Mongols uh, in into Altishahar and establishing uh, Altishahar as a protectorate of the Dzungar, uh, Dzungar Empire. And for um, Uyghurs who have read this novel, and, uh, it, this means that he opened the way for Chinese rule because he over he gave up an, an Uyghur kingdom, an Uyghur Yarkand, a kingdom centered in Yarkand, uh, to rule by the Mongols. And then when the Mongols were defeated by uh, by the Qing, then this became a part of the of uh, the Chinese sphere. And so people will tell you that they feel really guilty when they go to the shrine, or they get really angry if they have to go uh, have to go to the shrine. Um, so these are the main the two the two main views. Now, this goes very much against what the shrine was originally tended as, which was a family tomb. Um, a tomb that would um, what's the word? Uh, maintain and communicate the, the lineage of, of saints in this one Sufi group, which is actually very different from most of the shrines in, in Altishahar, which don't really care as much about lineage. Um, so, But both of them are then equally, uh, let's, how do I say this? Equally um, consistent with the larger shrine tradition that I'm trying to um, show in this book, which is associating of one major figure with with a holy place. And so both of them, the, the, the Chinese government official view has actually had to accommodate to the local Uyghur tradition of shrine worship, which is there should be one major figure for each shrine and there should be a story that goes along with them. The Chinese government has chosen uh, Shangfei, uh, but, and then many of Uyghur visitors have chosen uh, Afak Hoja as this one major one major figure, but this would have been all alien in the uh, in the early part of, say, the uh, eighteen early eighteen hundreds. So, Ryan, there's um, a ton of material in the book that we haven't had a chance to talk about. I mean, there's extraordinarily rich descriptions of not only the manuscripts you're working with, your experiences on site and doing this research, um, the consequences of the story for how we think about and how we practice history, um, stories of nationalism, etc. It's a really wonderfully wide-ranging and extraordinarily packed book um, in, in only the best possible way, right? Well, thank you very much. So we, we've come to the end of the hour, um, and you know the interviews can't be comprehensive, and I hope listeners will all go and find a copy of the book and read it. But in the meantime, is there anything in particular that we didn't have a chance to talk about, but that you'd like to mention for listeners, and perhaps especially for listeners who haven't yet had a chance to become readers? Um, one of the things that I hope this book does is to push the study of Uyghur history or the study of Xinjiang's history a little bit outside of the uh, question of identity. I know there's a lot in the book that touches on identity that's completely accidental. I um, went into this saying I'm not going to do anything about identity. Not that 
identity isn't an interesting question with the Uyghurs. It obviously is uh, fascinating, and a, a lot of really great work has been done on that. But so you know, sometimes, especially in um, societies that are seen as marginal, um, a group can get a reputation for one scholarly road of inquiry, and that can really it can really direct all future scholarship. And so I'm hoping that this will open, just kind of show, you know, all the other interesting things that, that Uyghur culture and Al-Tashahri culture can open up for us as, as a, you know, one of many unique human inventions of how to deal with the world, how to understand the world. Uh, it's something that is of global uh, comparative value. Great. So now that the book is done, and again, congratulations on what I think is a really amazing book in many, many ways. What's next for you? What projects are currently inspiring you? Well, when I started this, I um, I had very little interest in religion as a topic. But once I came to the conclusion that shrines were central to Uyghur historical practice, um, I found myself learning a lot about Islam, and in particular, the way Islam is practiced among the Uyghurs. And this led me to feel like the Uyghur Islam has been pretty poorly represented, uh, and it's been represented from a very urban uh, perspective. So um, I'm going to, I'm working on a project sort of generally about Uyghur Islam, uh, but not entirely, which I hope will straighten out for um, casual readers some some misunderstandings about Uyghur Islam. But more importantly, I'm, I noticed that the things that we categorize as Islamic, and of course that would, in, in the 100 years ago, virtually everything had Islamic resonances of one, one sort or another for al-Tashahris. Um, but the things that we as outsiders tend to categorize as religious texts or Islamic practices open up windows on connections to between Al-Tashar and the rest of the world that have gone, uh, have gone ignored. What doesn't appear in mercantile records, what doesn't appear in state records, often does appear in religious texts. And so I'm looking at Islam as, um, as a way of understanding the, the connectedness and of, of, uh, Altishahar to the rest of the world, but seeing Altishahar is more of a, a a pivot almost between India and and China. So I'm looking at uh, re- inter- interrelations between uh, Hui Muslims and uh, Uyghur Muslims, and also uh, Sufi visitors from uh, Kashmir. This summer, I was doing archival reach uh, research in. Uh, in Kashmir and trying to tease out some connections that haven't haven't been noticed before. I should say this is this is still very fresh. I have a, a, a publication or two that have come out of this, but I'm still very open to seeing what the material itself will will throw up uh, for me. I think shrines may be important in this because they are maybe not under the name shrines, but they're uh, an almost universal human product and i'm trying to see if there's some i I feel like there's some interesting universality that is presenting itself that will that will be especially noticeable when you compare a chinese shrine to an indian shrine with 
Altishahar and Tibet in the middle. Um, I'm really sure where that that will go. But short answer, book about uh, Uyghur, the history of changes in Uyghur Islam in the 20th century. Okay, so that's fantastic too. So we're we're gonna I'm gonna make you talk to me about that book as well because that sounds like another fascinating project. So best of luck with that work. Um, congratulations again, Ryan, and thank you again for both a really fascinating book and for also making the time to talk about it. Thank you so much. It's been a wonderful pleasure chatting with you. You've been listening to new books in East Asian studies. Thanks very much for joining us, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>